Are you at a career crossroads and thinking about what's next for you? For career change tips, stories and resources, sign up to our newsletter at whatshedidnext.com.au. I was finding that it was things about creating creating my own projects and things that I wanted to do outside one plus one but then I had this amazing pull because that's where I got a lot of my learning from and you know that was my intellectual boost for the week so it was this dilemma. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host Jackie Uwe and this is a podcast where I talk to women about their inspiring career changes. Deciding whether to leave your job is never an easy task. And for my guest today, it was a process of exploring what truly makes her happy. Jane Hutchin was a familiar face on our TV screens for 25 years, making her mark at the ABC as a foreign correspondent, a news presenter, and the host of One Plus One. But in 2019, Jane announced her decision to leave the national broadcaster, driven by a sense that life was getting short and there was more she wanted to do. Jane had started doing a stock take at the beginning of each year, reflecting on where she was at, what she enjoyed doing, and whether she was happy. And it helped her realise that what she wanted to be doing was working on her own projects. Jane has since gone on to write and perform her first theatre show called Lost in Shanghai, and she's released a new book, Rebel Talk, about the art of conversation. It was fascinating to hear Jane's insights about her career change and that despite her success over many years, she still grapples with self-doubt. Of course, she's also an incredible storyteller and a legend to boot. So please welcome from Sydney, Jane Hutchin. So Jane, you were a regular face on our TV screens for many years, and I read that from a young age you were quite taken by the magic of TV. So what was it about television that was so alluring for you? Uh, I remember as a, I was probably five, and I think our class was invited to appear. I grew up in Hong Kong, so we were invited to appear in fancy dress on a kids' TV show. I think it was called Candy's Corner, which probably dates me, but that's okay. (laughs) I was born in the 60s. Um, And I remember um, seeing a friend of, a little friend of mine on TV, And I was absolutely convinced they were looking straight at me and they could see me. So I was really excited to go on TV so I could see all the people I knew on the other side. And of course, we were in the studio, there were all these big cameras and I was so disappointed that, you know, you look at the camera and that's pretty much it. So (laughs) I was very intrigued by this, but it didn't it didn't deter me. I mean, I was fascinated by TV all through my childhood. And yeah, you know how life is about a series of dreams. You sort of have a dream that maybe one day you could be working there or you could be that person. And I think that was probably one of my very first little dreams, you know, is, is that something I could do? Well, it was something you could do (laughs) and you went on to do it very successfully. Um, You became a journalist and I know both your parents were journalists, so perhaps not surprising in some ways that you followed in their footsteps. 
But you took it to quite an extreme. You were a foreign correspondent in places like China and the Middle East and reporting from war zones. So where do you think that adventurous spirit came from? Well, I never intended to be a war correspondent. I was fascinated by international events. I mean, even from the first... I worked in Hong Kong, but we used to have this big, um, big brother, big ogre, if you like, China breathing down our necks. So I remember the first time I actually went to report in China. It was so incredible that this place was only a three hour flight from Hong Kong. And Hong Kong to me seemed so sophisticated and advanced and you know, in China, people would do their business on the street and people wore the same things. They wore either, well, they wore green Mao jackets or they wore blue Mao jackets, but that was pretty much it. And it just seemed so fascinating that this place that I'd sort of heard about but didn't really know was just on our doorstep. And that really, I felt like a sponge. A lot of people say this when you're a correspondent, you just become a sponge and you absorb everything around you and you you start to ask questions I think that's the beginning so you know a little bit and you're just very hungry to know more and I think Mm. that's what happened with me I was never um not a brave person at all I have to sort of mark things off and give myself challenges in order to achieve things but I am quite driven and I am motivated and I'm hard working so I think those are my sort of Those are my skills um, as opposed to bravery. Well, that's interesting because I think from the outside, people would assume it takes a lot of courage to be reporting from all sorts of countries and war zones in particular. I mean, were there many women reporting from war zones at that time? Actually, there there were. So I suppose my one and only, um, I, I covered the Middle East between 2003 and 2005. And then in my later posting in Europe, I also went back to some conflict zones. And there were a lot of fantastic role models um, from the BBC. There's one, Orla Giran, who's actually been reporting from Ukraine still. And she was just a fabulous, fabulous reporter. Lise Doucette was another BBC correspondent, just would sort of jet in and out of places, but always seemed to have such a deep understanding of the issues and particularly Orla's reporting. So she would always find a story and she would um, embed that story with the facts of this conflict. And those stories would be really memorable and she recently did this about a family that were fleeing across a bridge and the whole story was really about how they got from one side of the bridge to the other literally across a beam of wood and a raging torrent underneath and this sort of form of storytelling really appealed to me it was about the people it wasn't about the wars Mm. and it made me wonder how people could live like that, how they survive, what drives them. And I'm definitely sure that was the seed of the interview show that I went on to do One Plus One because it was about finding what is important to human beings and what what urges us on and what holds us back. 
Well, I wanted to ask you what appealed to you about doing a show like One Plus One because, you know, after I think you were working overseas for more than a decade, but then you did decide to come back to Australia. Uh, you were married by this stage to your partner, Michael, and had your daughter, Isla. I mean, that must have been quite a big shift in itself coming to Australia, but then the opportunity to host your own show must have been very exciting. So, yeah, what appealed to you about about a show like One Plus One? Well, so that's the edited version And the full version was that I didn't come back to Australia on the best of terms with my boss. And I, in a sense, wasn't given an opportunity to remain in Europe. Although I had decided that I wanted, being an older mother, I wanted to spend some time with my daughter. I didn't want to be a working mum from the time she was, you know, three months old or something like that. So Mm. I came back to Sydney with my family and I wasn't happy and I wanted to leave, but I didn't know if it was the best time having a, a very small daughter and, you know, I knew it would impact on the household finances. So I actually... I haven't really talked about this before, but I did a coaching course. So I qualified as a business coach and yes, I did. And I (laughs) loved it. I absolutely adored it. And I, I have people that I did the course with who I'm still in contact with now. And I, I was wanting to kind of, um, put myself out there as, um, a media coach and people maybe who wanted to do public appearances, I could coach them into doing that. And I remember I kept hiring a babysitter to look after my daughter and I'd go out and I wouldn't win the job, but I had paid for the babysitter. And then another one of those came along and then someone stood me up like, you know, I was waiting outside their office. So I didn't even get to the meeting and I just kept paying for child minding. And I just thought, okay, maybe this isn't the perfect time to be doing this. Why don't I go back to work for a few days a week and see what happens? And lo and behold, I was um, starting with a new network, ABC News Network, and was offered the amazing opportunity of an interview show. And to be honest, it wasn't that they sat down and they um, interviewed a whole load of people and said, Jane, you're the best one for the job. It was simply that I was one of the senior journalists working at the news network and my boss needed me to do something else apart from presenting news. And so that's how the job came up. So it was very, very organic. It was a show that wasn't supposed to really continue for more than 10 years as it has done. Mm. And I just, I just really learned to love it and to feel a bit, um, like I'd stolen an opportunity. I, I, of course, felt like a fraud, as most women do, but I just really began to enjoy what I was doing. And then when sometimes people would come in, guests would come in, and they'd say, I've watched, I've watched this one, this one, this one, and this one, and I'm really excited or, you know, and I'd sort of think, wow, there are people out there who watch this. So, yeah, it was sort Just of... Just like when you were younger, there were people <laughs> through that camera actually There were that. quite a few thousand, tens of thousands, sometimes even hundreds of thousands. <laughs> mm. Well, yeah, I mean, as you said, 
you know, you did one plus one every week for close to a decade. You did get to interview some incredible people over that time. I mean, what impact did that show have on your life? Well, it was um, it was a massive privilege, and one that I I think I still I still take those privileges because having realised that there is a format to an interview. And I write and talk about this in my new book, Rebel Talk. Um, there's a way you can get into people's lives if they're prepared to sit and look at you and give you some time. There's a way you can progress through that conversation. And often people would give me something that was completely unexpected And that is a thrilling moment and it continues to be a thrilling moment for me, whether I'm emceeing event or an event or or speaking with someone over like we are now. It's just thrilling when somebody confides or unpacks something for you that really reveals the kernel of that individual. So that sense of privilege um, and delight. It's fun. Um, yeah, never really left. Yeah. I think that, that line about fun is important too. We forget to talk about fun in a work context sometimes, but really that enjoyment is key. Absolutely. And, and also, um, finding humor. I think I've never felt I was particularly skilled at that, but I realized it was just a matter of, um, because I would, I would definitely look in the interviews for moments when I could have fun with people because nobody wants to sit there listening to a 30-minute interview that just gets so depressing or so sad or so intricately boring if you're discussing something that a lot of people might not want to listen to, like physics or (laughs) maths or something. (laughs) And it's important to make it accessible to everybody who's watching. So you're kind of like a fisherman um, casting out into different areas, seeing what you're going to get back. And, yeah, that's a very wondrous process. So there came a point, though, in 2019 when you announced your decision to leave the ABC after 25 years. Uh, And when we chatted earlier, you mentioned that it actually took you about five years to come to that decision. Um, And you said the biggest obstacle you had to overcome was your internal dialogue. So what were you grappling with exactly? Yeah, well, I I was the first question I really grappled with was, am I giving up? And that's a bit of a red rag to a bull kind of question for me, because I don't give up easily. And I don't like the sense, if I have to give up on something that's not working, I do beat myself up quite well. And so I had to make that decision about whether or not, was I giving up my career or did I want to leave my career? So I think those are really key questions. And I think the person that really helped me, so I kind of lived life through my guests always. I'd always learn things from them. And if they suggested things to read or, um, you know, if their own works were really interesting, I would read them. And I interviewed a guy called Professor Paul Dolan. 
And actually that, oh, we can talk a bit about that book later, but he wrote a book called Happiness by Design. And it was about, he's a behavioral scientist, a psychologist, he's so many things. And his main thesis, um, so he worked in the UK on the UK Happiness Index. He's pretty, pretty amazing guy, Professor Paul Dolan. And in his book, he, I think it might have been him who suggested this idea of doing a stock take with your happiness and your sense of fulfillment. Anyway, I sort of borrowed that and twisted it because I didn't agree with all the elements of his ideas, but that idea of doing a stock take was very, um, it was very interesting to me. So I'd start making notes in my phone about, um, you know, am I happy? And I'd always do it at the beginning of each year. And I'd see where I'd progressed, you know, have things changed. And I realized that, you know, so maybe I started that in 2014 or 2015. And I think the things that made me happy, apart from my family, um, I love travel. And in fact, I had missed um, travel. And I was finding that it was things about creating creating my own projects and Mm. things that I wanted to do outside one plus one. But then I had this amazing pull because that's where I got a lot of my learning from. And, you know, that was my intellectual boost for the week. So it was this dilemma. So at first the stock take would sort of note all these other elements. And then as the years went on, it just, you know, the one voice that just did keep repeating itself in my head was leave the ABC, leave the ABC. And then, of mm-hmm. course, we get that question, what, well, what are you going to do next? And yes. I've always done other things in my career. I used to be a magazine writer in my in the early times of my career. I used to actually go under a pseudonym. I wrote two books while I was fully employed. I've always enjoyed doing other projects. Mm. And I wondered whether... Um, could I have enough work to feel fulfilled just, you know, seeing what comes my way and also coming up with projects that I wanted to do? And mm. it soon became um, it's like the drumbeat grew closer and closer <laughs> and I just thought you can't ignore this. And then the, the sort of um, the release key, if you like, was um, – I got my 25-year medal at the ABC, which sounds wow. shocking, but for me <laughs> it was – I felt like I had done many jobs in that 25 years. I hadn't just, you know, journalist. I was international correspondent. I worked on late line. I was finance correspondent. I was presenter of One Plus One. So it felt like I had many different jobs in that time. And mm. I think once I got the medal or once I hit 25 years, I just felt – that's it. I I don't need to I don't need to please anyone. I don't mm. need to perform or, you know, I don't need to live up to anyone's expectations. And my dad was really I think my dad was very proud of what I did. Um two of his kids are journalists and one is right. a lawyer and he, you know, he said, "But people won't know you a month after you leave." And I just thought well, I've never worried about that. That That's not what is important to me. Mm. It's not an external thing. It's about what do I want to make and what do I need to get out there? I think that was for me the real 
the real issue. Mm. So, yeah, in in 2018, I had the stock take. And then at the end of 2018, I started to tell friends. And I thought, well, if I'm starting to actually tell people that I'm going to leave next year, it'll be more real. (laughs) Yes. Well, I think that's what, you know, you commonly hear about career change is that, of course, you need to think about it and do the stock takes, as you said, but it's not until you take an action, whether that is telling someone and finally getting it out of your head, that that really does solidify it. And also, I think it helps you start to formulate exactly what it is you want to do next. Because as you said, you know, I think a lot of women can relate to that idea of, you know, that niggle of needing a change or wanting a new challenge, but that next stage of, but how do I decide what I actually want to do next? That's the part where a lot of people come unstuck. Yeah. And I was actually given a massive boost in this whole project because I think um, as I was about to announce my departure, I got this amazing offer to do a stage tour with the actor David Suchet, who played the Poirot character in the um, ITV series over 25 years. And I'd interviewed him for One Plus One. And he, through his producer, asked me to appear with him in a sort of Q&A type of stage show, which was going across about six weeks in 21 theatres across Australia and New Zealand. And for me, that was just such a, you know, it was yes, yes, and yes. I would never have been able to do that if I'd still worked for the ABC. And it was just something I could say I was going to be doing. It was like the first job in my freelance career and it would set me up. And it did set me up mentally. Um, it was a, a wonderful thing to do. And then, of course, COVID hit right after that, which was a game changer again. <laughs> yes. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because I know one of the other um, sort of jobs, I guess, that you came to do after you left the ABC was as a tour guide, which some people, well, I think you'd been doing it for a little while, actually, while you were still at the ABC. But yeah, some people may not know that you'd taken on that role. Uh, so yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. But I imagine jobs like that were scuppered by COVID. Yeah, a little bit. So that was, um, again, that was something that came to me and it was just delightful. So I was, I think it was in 2017 or 2018. I did my first tour in 2018 and it was to Israel and the Palestinian territories, which is a place I'd lived there for two years as the Middle East correspondent. And tour guiding is, I've done some tour guiding in Australia. I've done food, a couple of food tours, but the joy of a tour to a place like Israel, Palestinian territories, or I've done Oman and I've done Ethiopia. And they're long trips. They're over two weeks. Um, They're with a very diverse group of people, which um, I'd say 80 to 90% of them I just immediately gelled with. Many of them are still my friends and we still organize dinners and see each other frequently. And to be able to learn about the history of a country or show them places where I used to go and report and Mm. explain how the system works was just such an absolute joy to me. It was, it was probably as hard as, um, being a correspondent. You don't get a lot of off time where you can switch off and be yourself. But Mm. I found that really joyful being able to share 
stuff with people and maybe be a bit of support and just a link with link with home. I just really enjoyed that job. So hopefully in a year or two that will be back on the cards, but yes. we don't know. <laughs> we don't. I know I keep thinking, are we going to get to travel this year? I feel like I said this last year and, yes, still waiting. Yeah. So, yeah, so COVID happened, as you said. I mean, how did that impact your new career plans more broadly? Was it something you were worried about? Did it turn out to be a good thing? Yeah, well, do you remember that day when there were just queues of people outside all the Centrelink offices? Um, Mm. I remember the news that night where literally jobs had completely crashed out and I knew my stuff, it it wasn't all cancelled overnight, but it was sort of cancelled within a two-week period, but I couldn't feel sad or sorry for myself at all because I looked at people who were losing everything and even friends of mine who lost businesses overnight just because they happened to be in the CBD or something like that. Mm. So I kind of felt we were all suffering together and in terms of suffering, it wasn't really suffering for me. It was... um a reset, if you like, and it was quieter. We live on a bit of a flight path and the plane stopped flying, and I think I talk about this in Rebel Talk. There was a bit of a human anthropause, which was, you know, the whole level of seismic activity all over the globe just calmed down because of COVID. Mm. And I actually started to really lean into that, you know, look around me and think, okay, what is it that's important to me? What am I hearing? And I saw one of my old episodes on TV and as is always the case, I always get a shock when I hear my voice. I sort of, I thought, (laughs) this is what I thought. I thought, who's that nice English woman on the TV? (laughs) And I always hate it when people call me English and there I was, you know, thinking, oh, there's someone who's slightly British there. And (laughs) I just started to listen to the interviews for the first time as a viewer. You know, there was enough distance. So they were Mm. replaying them um, at different times of the day. And, um, yeah, I just got this opportunity to listen to some of them as a viewer. And it started to get me thinking about whether those interviews could actually form the basis or like be like a tool to help people with the art of conversation. Mm. And that's where the idea of Rebel Talk came about. Although I have to say initially it was a much messier tool and then I sent it to um, a very new friend who was a futurist and she oh, wrote right. back overnight super excited and said, yeah, you got to get a better acronym. you got to get something that's a bit more of a call to action like Rebel so. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, Rebel Talk was born. Well, yes, yeah, so I wanted to ask you about the new book. So, you know, as we said, COVID did give you that time to pause, but you were also quite busy during that period, it seems, because you did write and perform a one-woman show about your mum, which I know you'd been wanting to do for a very long time. But you did also write this book, which is quite different to your previous books. And, you know, in, in as you said, that it delves into the art of conversation and how we can, I guess, learn the skills to communicate better, to be heard and inspire change. 
I mean, why did you want to write this particular book now? Well, I wanted to write the book because I felt that it was important for me to kind of share what I'd learned through doing one plus one. And actually, it's there's going to be another book coming out later this year, which is more directly about the craft of interviewing. And those two were books I wanted to write to to kind of make sure that I didn't lose all of those skills that I had acquired. And really, Rebel Talk was written in, I think it was more the year before last than last year, although I I changed it a lot and I refined it quite significantly. Mm. And then the I guess the story about Lost in Shanghai, the piece I performed at the Sydney Festival in January 2022, that was something that had been bubbling along from um, probably the beginning of um, 2020. It was put off the agenda because we had to get funding. And I was warned that it could take two or three years before it ever saw the light of day. And instead, in August 2021, I heard from Annette Shunwar, who's the creative director of CARP, the Contemporary Asian Australian Performance, and she said, the Sydney Festival are interested in it. We're going to have to start making this now. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so it was quite quick from development to um, performance, but, yeah, amazing, amazing. Mm. And, I mean, just coming back to your book, Rebel Talk, I thought also it was interesting that you do reflect on your career change and you say, in particular, I wanted to lead a more deliberate life. So mm. what does that look like for you now? Well, I just feel it's been more than two years since I left the ABC and I feel like that was in a past life. It just feels so alien to me when people say, Oh, I still miss you on TV and wish you were doing one plus one. And I sort of think that just feels like another age. Um, as a freelancer, I, I, my biggest issue, as I'm sure a lot of women know, is saying no to things and just finding the space to create my content, which is really my main goal. And then when I have time to deliver that content, um, but so that's what I do. And, uh, I have a very sort of tight diary system and I just try and make sure that I bundle things so that I've got spaces of free time to actually create the content. Cause that's what I call myself a creator in chief. Yes. <laughs> I love it because yeah, I just love to create things. Um, mm. so it's about finding the time to keep doing that. Mm. Well, yeah, I think, you know, because so often we hear the phrase, say yes to opportunities, like that's how you get ahead. And, you know, of course, that can work, particularly early in your career, I suppose, you know, if you're offered that promotion or if you're headhunted for a particular role, you know, it's flattering and and it's exciting as well. But I think, you know, if it's not something you've actively sought out or thought about, you know, saying yes to everything can steer you away from the person that you want to be or the career you want to have or the goal that you want to achieve? Yeah, look, I still absolutely look out for opportunities every single day of the week and I love the serendipity of how this works because an opportunity for me 
it's like when I did Lost in Shanghai, the most beautiful, wondrous thing about making that piece of theatre was that I got to work with five professional, amazing people. I had a new team and that's kind of what I miss about working on my own. And I do have, you know, my publisher's part of my team. I love him. Mm. He's always giving me great feedback. You know, you, you do sort of amass this unofficial team when you work for yourself and an opportunity might be an, a chance to work with a new team of amazing people who teach me new skills. So I'm always, my radar is always on mm. for the opportunity to work with people who will give me new skills and improve the skills that I already have. But I try not to take on so many jobs that involve me being an interviewer because an interview is a lot of work and I've done interviewing before. So, yeah, I'm always just looking out for things that um, will take me to another level or, or give me, you know, it's like the tour leading. Mm. Uh, some of my friends said, what on earth do you think you're doing? But I thought, <laughs> yeah, I could do that. I want to do that. That's a different kind of performance. Bring it on. Well, I wanted to ask you about that identity shift of sorts because, you know, for so many years you were – TV Jane, host of One Plus One, you know, making that shift to tour guiding to uh, creator in chief, as you describe yourself. I mean, was there a process that you had to go through to navigate that shift in your own mind or was it more perhaps other people's perceptions? Look, I, I see myself as a communicator and a connector. And so within that realm, there's a lot of freedom. And I suppose the, the stuff that doesn't sit well with me is when I, d I hate to disappoint people, but more than that, I, uh, the one thing about tour leading that I, I didn't like was when people were unhappy about something, but they didn't say it to me. They wrote about it afterwards. Mm -hmm. And it was a very, often a very personal thing. Like I remember one person wrote that I was a journalist, not a tour leader. And I just thought, wow, I would have <laughs> thought that was like a win, win, win. <laughs> and it made me kind of curious what people choose to pick on. So I think it's really important to so creator in chief works perfectly for me because when you create, you don't always succeed. Mm. You might create something that doesn't work or it's very small and it's over, even though you might wish it wasn't over. So I think as long as you're hungry and I am, and you're kind of looking for things to fill you up. You're looking for more abundance. You're looking for challenge. You're looking for beauty, knowledge. And you know it within yourself. You can't buy that sort of stuff. You can't do a course mm. and then become a, a super curious person. I think it's just got to be something that's ticking away in you. And so that is my identity. I don't see the person who's necessarily the one coming back on the TV with the nice makeup and, and hair, that's not – I don't see that as being me. That's mm. one plus one, Jane. That's what I had to do for that job. Yeah, so it was never an issue. It didn't bother me in the slightest, you know, and I, I walk around – as myself and sometimes people will see me even with a mask on and say, <laughs> oh, hi, I really liked your show. But yeah, it's about 
I think it's about an internal identity, not not how other people see you. Yes. Well, as you said, it's been about two years now since you embarked on your new career chapter. What would you say is the best part about your work life now? That's that's a tough one. I, I just I, I just find that really hard to say. I, I enjoy um, I enjoy ever. I even enjoy posting my books out. I opened a Shopify shop recently, and I love packaging and annotating <laughs> and putting cards in. I, I think it's called fulfillment. And it's, um, I do all my own fulfillment. I, I love doing wow. that. Um, I made a big mistake the other day. I had to cancel something because I didn't have that payment system. And I thought, oh, what am I going to do? So what did I do? I emailed the person and apologized and told them that I stuffed up and could they please <laughs> rebuy the book on another platform? And guess what? They were fine about it. That's great. <laughs> so it's it's just um, I just really enjoy what I'm learning, and there's there's no other way to. It's nothing sort of big and beautiful, and I feel like I should perhaps be creating something that's much bigger. But just um, connecting with people, writing books, creating things. That's what I get up every day feeling. What, what's going to happen today? Mm. And what's next for you in your life and career? Well, I am writing um, Great Question, the book about interviewing as we speak, mm -hmm. and that's going to come out later this year. I, I really love, so I'm very much into writing short books at the moment. My previous books were um, long, so, you know, 250 to 300 pages. My New books are 120 pages because my attention span has certainly shortened and I want something like Rebel Talk and Great Question to be a book that people read over and over again. So it'll only take you an hour to read. And, yeah, creating those is is a lot of hard work, but oh, they give me such satisfaction. So to be able to talk to people about how they could make their conversation better. And, of course, the person I really wrote it for was me because mm -hmm. I need to work on that every single day. <laughs> I do. I'm not sure about that, Jane. <laughs> I think you're very well practised. <laughs> so we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast and you've made some pretty brave leaps in your life and career. What would you say has been your bravest moment and how did you find the courage to go for it? I think my bravest moment was thinking I could write and perform a stage play and sending an email to that effect to um, the creative director of CARP, Annette Shanwar. And what made me do it, I have no idea because as soon as I hit the send button, I thought, what are you thinking? <laughs> That's so interesting to me because it's clear that you have all of the skills to do something like that. But, it, you know, as you say in your own head, you sometimes still have imposter syndrome or oh, other things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow, okay. And you've certainly inspired many women in your career, but who are some of the women that you look to and who inspire you? So when I look at inspiring women, I just find that we all or society tends to trot out the same names time after time after time and that frustrates and depresses me so I'm going to nominate 
two women who probably don't come across the inspiring quotes or inspiring YouTube channels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I like people who are hard workers and who go beyond activism in what they say. So Baroness Jean Corston is an amazing woman from the UK and she did a landmark report on women in prisons and she rose from you know not being very her family was quite poor and she became a lawyer she was a member of the labor party and i found her truly inspiring and what she achieved in her life and what she continues to work for and the second person is someone i work with a lot and i met her through interviewing her on one plus one and her name is Deborah Keenahan. And Deborah is a double PhD. She's a short statured person and she, nothing stops her. And yeah. she is so incredible in her work, but she always has time to sit down and question me in a way that challenges me and doesn't put me down. So Deborah Keenahan is both a dear friend and an inspiration. And if you could recommend one thing to watch, read or listen to for any aspiring career changes out there, what would you recommend? Well, I did mention the book about um, Happiness by Design by Paul Dolan, but I'm also going to mention, I think it's a TED Talk interview by Ruth Chang about how to decide when you're in two minds. Mm. And I really liked the theme of that, which I've sort of borrowed for the L in rebel, which is lead the way. And it's about, okay, I can't decide it's 50-50. So therefore I choose to make a choice, which is the one that I choose to make. And I think that's such an important lesson. So if you Google Ruth Chang TED Talk, um, I think it's about making decisions. That's my choice. Yeah. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. I think it's called How to Make Hard Choices. And I oh, watched thank it too. You. Highly recommend. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, if you could offer one tip to someone listening who's really feeling in need of a change, but maybe they don't know if they're making the right decision or, or they're not even sure what else they could do, what's your best tip for them? So if you want to make a change, you probably really do want to make a change. But I would always advise that you live a week in the job that you want to do because it may not be the right one. You might want to leave for a certain reason, but it's always good to trial the thing that you want to do and then that will just make the decision even easier. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Jane. I really appreciate your time today. Jackie, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. That was Jane Hutchin, Creator-in-Chief at Jane Hutchin Communications and the author of Rebel Talk, which you can find at janehutchin.com. If you enjoyed this conversation, we'd love if you could share the link with a friend or leave us a kind review. And if you'd like to stay in touch, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn at What She Did Next Podcast or subscribe to our newsletter at whatshedidnext.com.au. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe. Our associate producer is Catherine Cavill. And this podcast is made on Darawal Country. Thanks for listening.